0: Today's episode is sponsored by Jonas Paul Eyewear, stylish kids' glasses with an impact. Mercedes, I know you know about style and your babies are the coolest. You know it. So tell us how cute these glasses are.
1: Okay, listen, it's so hard to find on-trend glasses for kids. And these are the cutest glasses I've seen. Yes. And have you ever
0: used a home try-on kit for glasses? No, but it sounds super fun. And I feel like your kids get to play dress up. We have Jonas Paul glasses. And this past year, Brooksy, my eight-year-old, needed glasses. So we got a home try-on kit from Jonas Paul. Brooksy loves looking good. He actually legit wore a bow tie all on his own for picture day. Having a kid at home was perfect for him. They sent us seven frames and he had a week to walk around in them and make his own opinion. And it was really nice to not have that quick, we have 10 minutes in a store and there's fluorescent lights and we need to decide feeling. When he picked his frame, We put our order in online and we shipped the box of trial glasses back with the free shipping label provided, super easy. So you have Jonas Paul glasses at your house and you know what, so does Heather. Yeah, that's right. Mason has them. She's worn Jonas Paul glasses for a couple of years now. We all know that getting glasses to fit on our kids with Down syndrome can be difficult. There's a flatter nose bridge that our kids have and lower set ears, and that can make getting glasses to fit a challenge. Here's the thing about Jonas Paul. Their nose pads are designed specifically for children's noses. They also have these unique adjustable tips that you can bend for a custom fit, so you can make it fit to your child's perfect little face.
1: These glasses are so affordable. Half the price of most of the children's glasses out there. Plus, here's the best part,
0: every frame sold prevents childhood blindness in the developing world. It's so great. You know that Jonas Paul now sells glasses for teenagers and our kids are growing up. They're growing up fast and we are gonna need those teenager sizes before we know it. For first time customers, Jonas Paul is offering 15% off.
1: Use the promo code The Lucky Few at checkout. Visit their website, jonaspauleyewear.com, to learn more.
2: Hey friends, Heather here, and we have an exciting opportunity for you to join us as we continue this podcast and continue shifting the Down syndrome narrative. We have started a Patreon page, and this is a way for our listeners to support us financially every month so that we can keep the podcast going. We have three different tiers between $10 and $100, so wherever you feel you can give monthly, to help us support the podcast and to continue to shout the worth of people with down syndrome as we shift the downstream narrative you can head over to the lucky few podcast.com, sign up for our patreon page and start giving today thank you so much hey friends welcome to another episode of the lucky few podcast where we are shifting the narrative by shouting the worth of people with down syndrome this is heather mercedes and micah And today we are so excited to chat with our friend, Jalondra Davis. She is a writer, a scholar, a lecturer, and a parent of a son who happens to have Down Syndrome. So we can't wait to get this conversation going. Thanks for tuning in and listening today, friends. Welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. Okay, Mercedes, Micah. So this episode is coming out next week, but today is Mercedes' birthday. Birthday, birthday,
1: birthday. Happy birthday, Mercedes. Thank you. 35, feeling alive.
2: What a a theme. (laughs) What a theme. (laughs) What a theme in this this time of sitting in our home. I
1: kind of feel like a zombie, but I'm 35 today and it's fun. I'm happy. It's great.
2: (laughs) Good. Oh gosh, yes. So we're still in the midst of this coronavirus situation, and we're home in quarantine. In place. Right. Here we are in our houses. Um. It's also April Fools'. It is. But there's no joke
1: about all of this, you guys. (laughs) This is not a joke. (laughs) This is serious. It is my birthday, and we are all supposed to stay home, and there's (laughs) a virus that has hit worldwide. None of that's a joke.
2: (laughs) You guys, can I tell you this morning, real quick? I'm gonna keep it so short. Um, So we have a puppy. Puppy wakes up at 4:55 on the dot every day. Bless, it's fine. We're working it out. She's a puppy, so I take her out to pee, and then I come back inside, and I fell back asleep for a minute, and then she's awake again a half hour later. Five, it's now 5:30 in the morning. I come back inside, and Truly is upstairs in my room. Coming downstairs, and I look on the counter right then and notice that a package of food dye which I hit it last night because she was joking. She was hinting at she was going to use food dye to do something to trick us today. And I see it out. And I'm like, oh my gosh, where did she find this? I hit all of it. And then she comes downstairs with this tissue covered in red, like yes. oh, i have a bloody nose. And it's 5.30 in the morning. I got no patience for her shenanigans. So oh my gosh. She's <laughs> <not funny. laughs> it's just getting April Fool's. It's April Fool's. She's so excited. The sun is not up. And then in the next 10 minutes, I learned that she had taken the red food dye upstairs, put it all over the toothbrushes. Like we'd brush our teeth, hot sauce on the toothbrushes. And I go upstairs and there's like little dots of red dye on my rug in my bathroom. There's red dye outside our window going down to the sidewalk. Like we're (laughs) upstairs. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what is happening? And so I'd said to truly hate true, honey, I'd rather you didn't do April Fools' today because it's making me really uncomfortable. Life's really hard right now, so just, <laughs> it's making me uncomfortable. <laughs> if we can just not trick each other and maybe just be kind to each other today, oh my gosh! <laughs> Anyways, that was my morning. So did
0: she receive that?
2: Well, then she goes upstairs a little bit later, and now it's like six thirty in the morning. I just need to keep giving people <laughs> context for what time it is. <laughs> and said something to Josh, and then she yells, "I was downstairs," and she goes. Mom said we can't do any tricks today. Like, I don't I can't. I can't. I'm done. I know.
1: <laughs> That's the like, worst. I cannot stand. It may be because I was born on April Fool's Day. I cannot be stand being teased or tricked because I I don't know how to take it. <laughs> I don't know how to like. I be on edge. I'm like, okay, when is it
0: over? How long will I deal with this for? It's like it's like getting tickled. I just it hate is. getting tickled. <laughs> I feel so unhappy the entire yeah. time, even though I'm laughing. I'm like, right. I hate, I hate this. You're helpless. This way again. Right.
2: Yeah. Seriously, I'm like, especially truly, in the morning.
0: Yeah.
1: First right. thing.
2: <laughs> Surely there are parents who would love this. You didn't get those parents, and I'm sorry. We right. don't celebrate April Fools.
0: Right. Definitely
2: not right now. I'm so
0: tired. I'm We're in fun mom. in other ways. Let's just be fun. Other. She can't
2: do it at school. She can't get it out at school. That is so anyway. funny. But here we are.
0: So I what are your it. plans today, Mercedes? You're going to take a shower? And I'll take a like, shower. Go for a walk. Right? That's like as good as things are getting for me. I know,
1: right? <laughs> I asked Andy if I could take a nap. I want to take a nap. Good. Um. What else? We're planning a garden, and so we'll spend some time in the garden. I'll probably pick out some plants. I feel like that's just going to be my heaven, is just keep buying more plants, and by the end of this whole oh shenanigans, <laughs> they're going to know me by name at this nursery I keep ordering from, and they deliver, and um, our house will be a greenhouse indoors and outdoors. That'll be my Um. Yeah, but a nap is going to be my big thing, and then maybe a Zoom party. I got to jump on the Zoom party bandwagon. Maybe I'll do that. I'm going to try and talk to all the people I love today, and that's it. It's mellow. We're shelter in place. So
0: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of shelter in place, how are you guys holding up?
2: Oh wow! It's. Well, I mean, I just told my story, and so we're doing (laughs) fine. (laughs)
1: I feel like we're good now. Um, When this all started, Sunflower was in the hospital with pneumonia and our whole household was just like kind of in disarray and it was so crazy. So I feel like this past five days, we've gotten a grip um, on our reality and we're like stocked with food. We're kind of just like taking it day by day. But now that we're all under one roof and healthy, we feel like we can handle this, but before yeah. then, we were like sinking. Yeah. <laughs> we were sinking. Yeah. So now it's just day by day. Really, it's hour by hour, but I'm going to say it's day by day.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you guys, let's let's jump to it. We're super excited to have Jalandra Davis with us today. She is a writer, a scholar, a lecturer, and a mama. Living in LA with her son who has Down syndrome. Um, she is the author of the novel Butterfly Jar and has also written several articles on Black women's science fiction and has a blog called Warrior Mama, written from her unique perspective of special needs parenting as a Black feminist. Woo! it's exciting. <laughs> Welcome it. to the show, Jalandra Davis. Hi. Hi, thank Hi. you. Hi. <laughs>
1: yay thank you for being here we're so excited to chat with you more um before we get started can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and um that you have a phd a master's your own book your son tell us all the things (laughs)
3: um okay thank you so much i um i started out as a creative writer i have a master's in professional writing from usc Um, And then I went back to school and got a master's and a PhD in ethnic studies. Um, Right now I'm teaching at Cal State LA, but this year I'll be starting a postdoc, which is something you do after a doctorate (laughs) because there's never enough education. (laughs) So I'll be starting a postdoc at UC San Diego before I um, move across the country for my new job as an assistant professor um, at 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 Towson University. Um, So... Yeah. So I have a son named Shiloh. He was born while I was working on my dissertation. He's a dissertation baby. Um, <laughs> you know, we got a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome and, um, you know, some medical stuff right after he was born. It was a pretty difficult time. And writing the blog became, I actually didn't start the blog until I think he was already a year old, but it just became an outlet for me. Um, and it became a way to kind of, tell the story to family and friends. Cause I kind of dropped off the face of the earth for a little while. And yeah, you know, so it's right now it's more of a hobby than anything else, but I'm thinking about really, really trying to develop it. Cause I find that people have really connected to the story, whether or not they have, um, have a child with a disability. And one of the things that was really important to me is to bring an intersectional lens
4: mm-hmm. to the
3: conversation around disability and special needs parenting and Down syndrome.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like, your actual diagnosis, what mm-hmm. that was like for you with the doctors and anyone else and telling your family and your process with that?
3: Yeah, it was it was pretty awful.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs>
3: You know, I didn't really. It, it took a long time, and I'm not sure why. Um, it really took a long time for me to kind of reach out and start connecting with other parents who were parenting with Down syndrome. I think we were just in survival mode for the first few months. Um, it within it within me and my husband, there were some definitely differences around processing the information um and maybe some denial (laughs) right Mm -hmm. so we didn't have we weren't in community with a lot of people you know who were parenting with Down syndrome so now that I have more conversations with people I kind of realized how messed up my diagnosis process was Mm -hmm. (laughs) so um it wasn't a formal diagnosis we we had the blood test I can't remember the name for it now but you know it's about 98% accurate yes I got that Um, too yes so we were, we had a doctor switch. I, in, I think it was my 14 week scan. Um, like that 14 week round of tests, um, revealed like, Oh, the possibility of chromosomal abnormalities, but I didn't take it terribly seriously. Um, I talked to a lot of people in my community about it and they're like, Oh, I had that too. My baby was fine. (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I didn't take it super seriously. We changed doctors and, that doctor, the initial doctor said that the only way we'd be able to confirm it would be through um, an amni- am- amnio, right? Mm-hmm. And so we decided not to do that because there was this, you know, tiny risk of miscarriage, but we decided not to do that. And when I went to a new doctor, that's when I found out about the blood tests, right? Mm-hmm. And so at this point, I think I was already about 22, 24 weeks pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so... I really, really wasn't expecting the results that we got, like took the blood test. Cause why not? Okay, <laughs> you know, it's right. non-invasive, completely forgot about it. And, um, yeah, a nurse from the doctor's office called me at home <laughs> and told me on the phone. Okay, I was by myself. So they didn't, you know, cause I've talked to other people and they said they were brought into the office or the doctor called them personally. Nope. It was just like a checklist on her things to do that day. I keep saying I'm gonna write a letter to that doctor's office and I keep forgetting to do it, but I am gonna do that one day. Um, yeah, it was like it was a checklist on her things to do that day. And she tried to rush through it. She said, Yeah, your so your test was positive for Down syndrome. And I'm like, What? Um, and I'm crying on the phone, and right. she's just trying to go on to make an appointment for a follow-up, and I'm like, You're kidding me right now. Mm. Um, luckily, my husband works about five minutes away, and so I was able to call him. He was able to come home right away, and we just kind of went to the beach for the day and mm you know, just, we just ditched, we just did a ditch day and we went to the beach and we went for ice cream and we just tried to, you know, deal with it. But I think there was a part of me that was still in denial. And so we had the follow-up with the, um, I don't remember the name of anything from my right. pregnancy, What yeah, is the, um, the specialist, you know, for high-risk pregnancies. Um, I can't remember, yeah. but we met with the genetic counselor and the specialist and, um, they and for some reason I still thought, oh, we're gonna go in there and they're gonna be like, you know what, it's a mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they showed, you know, the genetic counselor broke down, you know, the chromosomes and like explained everything. And that's when it really hit me.
4: Yeah.
3: Um so it was difficult. Um, you know, I'm an intellectual and yes. so I think a lot of um my motivation around having children was very now that I look back on it, it was really silly but you know at the time I think I had me my husband and I are both we're very smart people we're very um but we're also very creative people Mm -hmm. and we we were both raised in kind of um a sort of environment of black practicality right like I came from a background where it's like you need to get a degree get a really solid job you know that's what you need to focus on he came from of upper middle class black family where it was you know okay you're going to do law or engineering or business you know and so we both felt like wow we're going to give our kids the best of everything we're going to give them the best education and we're going to let them be creative and we're going to expose them to arts and we're just going to have like this, these super children mm-hmm. right <laughs> and so I recognize now how problematic especially coming from my perspective as a black feminist scholar and analyzing mm-hmm. the intersections of class and race and and disability that that all, it was already very problematic but sometimes you don't always connect what you do do as a career mm-hmm. to your personal life mm-hmm. and so yeah just to you know have this idea of how I was going to the kind of education I was going to give my children and the kind of you know you know just all of these expectations <sighs> yes I just had to Just sit with that, right? And then before I educated myself more around Down syndrome, there was just this, is he going to be able to understand the books that I, or I I didn't know the gender at that point, but is this child going to be able to understand the books that I love? And are they going to be able to write poetry and, you know, just all of these things that were like really important to me as You know, so I think that that part during a pregnancy was actually more difficult to me. Mm -hmm. But then when I started doing more research and finding out about the medical side, that became the thing that I didn't even care about, the you know, intellectual disability anymore. It was the, the, just the intense fears of what might happen medically. Um, So it was hard. It was very hard. We had to, we postponed our baby shower. My husband had an extremely hard time. You know, initially he was like my rock but I think that he was in denial too. So once it sunk, sunk in for him, we like completely switched places. Mm. Um, right. So I was also dealing with like the different way we were processing it and feeling like I had to be super positive to kind of counterbalance all of his fear and anxiety. So it was tough. It was tough. And the process really continued even after our son was born. And sure. um, it's even something I think we still struggle with You know, but it it was hard. It was hard. But I mean, once he was born, that assuaged a lot of it. I mean, he is he was just the most beautiful. I mean, he still is. (laughs) Um, But I mean, he was just the most gorgeous child. And you know, it. You know, I've I've like made my peace with the difference in my expectations, and also realized that, you know, nothing will. I don't know. I think I needed this experience to to be the mother, I wonder, cause I do hope to have more children one day. I think I will be better for this experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Because my ideas around parenthood were, were kind of mm-hmm. messed up now that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like those initial ideas about what I thought parenthood and having excellent children. Yeah. Um, and the, all of the kind of, really ableist implications of this, mm-hmm. this idea of excellence, right. Um, really ableist, raced, classed, <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, I think it's been as it should be. Yeah.
0: It's amazing what going, like stepping into this, to this different life can reveal to us about ourselves. You oh, know? Yeah. How much I don't, I think that before I became a mom to child with down syndrome, I would never have said that I valued, um, performance and, and like Mm -hmm. placed value on ability and like uh, intelligence, the, and things like that in the ways that it was revealed to me because of my grief Mm -hmm. that I had to work through and be honest with myself about it and, Mm -hmm. and change
3: the way I looked at the world. Mm -hmm. Exactly yes exactly
2: yeah um i have a couple questions ladies i'm going way off script here um you had said that you and your husband were both raised with this idea of black practicality
3: can Mm -hmm. you unpack
2: that phrasing for our listeners (laughs) what that yeah it's
3: totally my own phrase it's just you know so one of the reasons i'm studying science fiction now is that as a young girl growing up i was really obsessed with fantasy right like i was obsessed with fantasy and fairy tales and Um, I just liked anything that seemed otherworldly or not possible. And sometimes I felt, you know, that coming from, you know, like coming from a really hardworking Black family that just really wanted us to have secure futures, that sometimes I was told, you need to get your head out of that fantasy and focus on the real world. And, you know, that's not something that you, and this this wasn't everyone, and my family definitely supported, you know, me being creative and the creative writing and everything, but there was also a lot of concern around, you know, she's not practical enough, right? Like she, you know, you got to make sure you have common sense, you have to make sure you get a good job, mm-hmm. you know, a good, solid job, a city job, you know, <laughs> like, it was just, you know, wanting... Me to be safe and secure. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I felt as I got older, I kind of, even though I was obsessed, one of the things I started doing when I was a little girl was writing retellings of all the major, like Western fairy tales, but I will set them in like East Africa or the Abbasid empire, you know, I would just set them in, you know, places with Brown people. So I could create what I didn't see in media growing up. Um, and as I got older, I just, I just moved away from it. Right. And I was like, Oh, I think I'm supposed to write realistic fiction. And, and I just kind of pushed away this part of me that was very invested in creating something an otherwise type of world. Right. Um, so, you know, I just felt like there was this push towards realism,
4: mm-hmm. right?
3: Um, and this push towards practicality that was partially grounded in the kinds of, you know, hardships that we had experienced, right? Mm-hmm. Like that I didn't have time for fantasy, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a little Black girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and on my husband's side, I think it it, w- it was similar, right? Like his family desired safety and security and prosperity for him. So there are things that I feel like he didn't consider as possible for him, right, because of that. Um, And and gifts and attributes and things that maybe weren't nurtured as much, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that we have this idea that the way that we would parent would you know, give our children the ability to, you know, be a doctor, engineer, lawyer, you know, like whatever it was that they wanted to be. But also, if you want to be an artist, if you want to do this, if you want to do this, like, we're gonna, we're gonna make it possible for you to do all of that, you know, or any of that, right? Like, just to take the boundaries of possibility away, right? Mm -hmm. And so for us, the Down syndrome diagnosis seemed to be a boundary around our child's possibilities Hmm. right like that's the thing that we saw at first is that they're not going to be able to do this or this or this or this Mm -hmm. or this right um you know i don't feel that way anymore you know but 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 that's what it felt like at that moment
0: you spoke to this a little bit jalandra um about how you started to unpack uh these realizations in your own work um Hmm writing about ableism that sort of thing mm-hmm. um you were an author and a writer before your son was born you wrote the bell jar i mean not the bell jar but
3: <laughs> the butterfly,
0: butterfly Jar. the butterfly jar before your son was born
3: mm-hmm, years before
0: okay how do you feel like his birth and this this change for you has affected your writing now
3: oh i mean you know i mean i wrote I wrote Butterfly Jar before I was a scholar at all, <laughs> right? So there are still, there are things that have nothing to do with ableism. When I look at the book now, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know? Like, I still think it's a very good book. And of course, I still encourage people to read it, but it reflects the fact that I wasn't really thinking critically around a lot of issues around, you know, race and class and gender and ability and um, and all of those things, right? But um, that, it's, definitely disability has become, you know, I started doing intersectional feminism, Black feminism, and Black feminism, um, probably a couple years after writing Butterfly Jar. I started teaching at CSU Dominguez Hills in the Africana Studies Department. I started out with literature classes, but they soon started having me cover different kinds of courses. So I sort of became a scholar on the ground, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, as I was teaching. Um, and, but disability, so I started Understanding intersectionality, I started understanding Black feminism in the way in which the history of Black feminism has been a history of analyzing different systems of power, mm-hmm. right? Like the way that race and capitalism um, and gender and all of these things work in connection with each other to create privilege or to create access or you know to create our different experiences, right? Um, but I didn't think about ability. I didn't think much about ability and it wasn't there wasn't as much of an explicit disability conversation in Black Studies or Black Feminist Studies. So definitely after I had my son, it is something that I started thinking about and started factoring um, more into my work. I still think that there's more room to do more and there's more mm-hmm. to be done. Um, but, you know, it's definitely something that has be- become more central
1: amazing um i got the chance to sit down with kelly kaufman a few weeks ago and do an interview with her and we um specifically talked about um being a person of color raising a child with down syndrome and um i just would love to hear from you what your experience has been like
3: yeah it's been a little lonely <laughs> you know i actually did listen to that interview and i started following her and um joined um oh, her yeah. Facebook group yeah, yeah. The yeah. black so, families it's so exciting because yes. i just don't find and i'm just like where are all the black parents like mm-hmm. <laughs> with children like i just don't we're members of club 21 okay. um that's the organization here in the los angeles area it's in pasadena and um, yeah, it's just, it's just really white. It's just very, it's very, very white. And um, I'm not sure what it is. You know, I haven't yeah. done the research to know what our numbers actually are. Um, one of the things I think happens and the thing that definitely happened with us when my son was first born is that I think black families, you know, you tend to turn inward to your family network mm-hmm. rather than seeking like some kind of outside community or resources. Mm-hmm. And I also think that the process that's the diagnosis. Oh, I didn't feel a need to really go outside. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, I remember calling every member of my family when we found out um our child would have Down syndrome and kind of doing this whole, okay, so here's the news. Pretty much the reaction from my mom was okay. <laughs> you know, like right. it's not okay. You know, it's all right. You know, God knows best. God don't make no mistakes. Like, right, you know, like right. that was, you know, the predominant sort of like black way of processing this that I experienced. So there there wasn't an immediate need to feel like I need to get around, you know, people, you know, but as he starts to get a little bit older and I needed to figure things out, I just realized the space is very wide. And I feel like there's there's a lot of when I think about intersectionality, right? The intersection of systems, I think that sometimes in the special needs parenting world, we are not thinking about the way in which the systems that impact our children particularly are also intersecting with other systems. So like something like education, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the conversations within like Down syndrome spaces and special needs spaces around education rely on kind of individual advocacy Mm -hmm. and the individual sort of resources of families, right? So advocating personally for your child, hiring attorneys, Mm -hmm. you know, how to navigate the IEP process so that you get the placement that you want, right? How to get the school district to pay to send your child to this specialized school, you know, like, and that's really difficult for me understanding that, you know, I would, is there a way to, of course, I want the best for my child, but like, I also want social justice, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and so what happens to the families that don't have the time or the space Mm -hmm. or the resources to do that kind of um, individual advocacy. You know, what happens to the children that get left behind Mm -hmm. if you find out how to get your child into this great school, but nobody, you know, like, so that's one of the things that's, it's kind of difficult for me to be in these spaces, not only as a black mom, but also as somebody who considers myself like invested in, Like social justice and a better world for all of our kids. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I also want my child to be in the best environment possible. I want to fight for him. And I'm just trying to figure out how do you, you know, (laughs) like, I don't want to throw away everyone else too. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that has been difficult, you know, it's been difficult and just, you know, there's just things people don't think about. Right. Um, my search for child care it's like i have to choose between you know finding the best environment for his needs and him being in an environment with other children of color you know mm-hmm. other black children black teachers right and and it's just an extra intersection in the extra level mm-hmm. that everyone doesn't have to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about, when I look at some of the literature on Down syndrome and some of the celebration around life expectancy, and this is an example I always talk to my students about when I'm trying to teach them about intersectionality, right? So there's like, oh, okay, well, the life expectancy is over 60 years old for people with Down syndrome, but for, you know, for Black people with Down syndrome, right, it's, like 30, 35, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, how can we possibly celebrate that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And then I looked at some studies. One of the reasons for this lower life expectancy is high rates of infant mortality, right? Like that that's one of the reasons for the lower life expectancy. So if you truly care about all people with Down syndrome, then the conversation about Black maternal and infant Mm -hmm. mortality will be a part of the conversation about life expectancy, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really not, you Mm -hmm. know? So like, those are some of the things that, um, you know, some, those are some of the things that sometimes I, I feel just uncomfortable sometimes in the environments. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. you know, <laughs> so
1: I can right. understand that cause I feel like those questions, I guess, since my, um, uh, my daughter, she's white, she's a blondie, <laughs> you know, and I, but I still feel that sense of loneliness in mm-hmm. a different way, being like, uh, mom of color raising a white child. You Mm -hmm. don't really see that. And then also that added layer of her having down syndrome, but also bringing up those different topics. Sometimes it doesn't feel like within social media because it's not pretty. It's not fluffy. Mm -hmm. It's not like positive advocacy to other people. It feels like it's not welcomed. So sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel timid, almost like embarrassed, almost like, is this, oh, well, I guess that's not the fight right now, but Mm -hmm. I have been trying to educate myself more and trying to find my way into introducing, okay, yes, we're advocating for people with Down syndrome um, and going a step further because I feel like a lot of parents or a lot of people within the space, this is their first time, I guess, if we're speaking of white families, this is their first time. Experiencing, experiencing an intersection at, yes <laughs> and feeling and those feelings and now they're hot and bothered because you're like oh my gosh we have to stick up for our child you know right. where it's kind of been ingrained for us at, mm-hmm. since we were born um so sometimes i feel like adding that extra like being an advocate for myself as a person of color within the space feels hard it feels like oh that's not positive oh it's probably then not speaking as a whole I don't know. Have you, have you felt the same way or can you understand what I'm saying? I'm like,
3: I understand exactly what you're saying. And truthfully, I think that the first few years of my son's life, finishing my PhD, trying to get a job, I've kind of not really done it, <laughs> you know? Oh, so my. I haven't, I haven't really, I mean, I've mentioned it, you know, I've had these conversations, like I've, I've, I've brought these conversations up. In more safe inner circles, or to the directors of organizations, but I haven't really put myself out of out there, really to like, really trying to intervene because I've been really preoccupied with survival, right, Um, one hundred (laughs) percent, and not really wanting to, you know, not wanting to, in the times where I need these collectives and these communities, not wanting to. Risk and pushed out of it, I guess. You know, you know? No, I get you. I do. No, I get not, you. Even though it's not that I assume or think that that would happen, but you know, you just pick your battles. Yes. You know, like as an academic mom and as a, um, you know, a mom with a child with disabilities, and as a, you know, we're in a co op now where I'm one of not that many moms of color. So, you know, I just find myself in a lot of white spaces mm-hmm. and just, you know, in my moments, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like in my moments where I think something needs to be said and just kind of observe it. I yeah. do think it's time to start having the conversation more open, openly, because I think if we think more broadly around justice, we understand that the things we're fighting for, for our children, if we fight for it in a different way, it also makes a difference for all children, right? Like, mm. you know, one of the things that when it comes to, um, special education, right. And like, we don't want our children segregated in special education, right. And special education has also become a way that black children, particularly Mm -hmm. boys have been segregated, like, Mm -hmm. you know, whether they should have their diagnosis or not. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so inclusive education, like a truly inclusive education where all children are like learning together and where the curriculum is designed, um, would, like at the public school level, right? Like that would benefit, like that would deal with all kinds of inequities, right? If we had that truly, like a true kind of inclusive education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, rather than these segregated spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so just drawing the links, right, between these different struggles and these movements, you know, um, it may be shifting a little bit away from like individual advocacy to more of a like, what does mm-hmm. justice look like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think that those are conversations that, you know, that we should be having in, you know, disability communities, you know, Down syndrome spaces, right? So, mm-hmm.
2: so yes. I mean, I just, amen and amen to everything you're saying. Um, this is a conversation that we've had, the three of us on the podcast, and that I've I've had with a lot of people like not only people who are white are having kids with Down syndrome. Like it is, mm-hmm. you know, down syndrome is not specific to a race. So why like the social media space is so saturated and um we have some I have a friend who is Korean American and doesn't feel welcomed in the space. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I feel like I can see it and understand it. And also what do we do? Right? Mm-hmm. Like what's the next step? And I like what you're saying. I think that what I'm hearing you say is we need a like a 10,000 foot step or, you know, like a 10,000 feet view of what's happening rather than the ground level. And I think a lot of people in the disability world, I think Mercedes said this, it's like a lot of people we can, I can speak as a white person. You know, I, you don't understand the privileges that other people have withheld because you've always had privilege. And then you have a child who has privileges withheld. And then like your justice meter goes up. You're like, this is an injustice to my child when there's so many other people groups who have always had those privileges withheld. Mm -hmm. And so to to go to that ten thousand foot level and realize, like, oh yeah, there's so much more happening here. Right. Um, I think that even the word, and I'd love for you to unpack it a little bit, because you've been saying it a lot, like intersectionality. Right. And I know that the that we're familiar with it here on the podcast, but I think it is a word that a lot of white people are like, I don't know what the hell that means. You know, Mm -hmm. like what does intersectionality mean? How would how do you describe that how do, like to your students at school?
3: So, what I tell my students because intersectionality discourse is definitely something that I think is has been misunderstood a lot. Um like people think that it's about identity, mm-hmm. but it's not about identity. it's about systems of power. Okay. and it's about the way that systems of power like connect and like run into each other in ways that produce privilege at certain inter- intersections and produce disadvantage, inequity, deprivation, and even violence, right? Um so you look at systems like like patriarchy, um heteropatriarchy is what we talk about because we see pa- patriarchy and sort of homophobia is inter is intertwined, right? Um race, gender, ability, citizenship, right? Mm-hmm. Nation, <laughs> you know, like yeah. uh, these are all systems and how and it, they intersect in a way that certain people within certain conversations become invisible, Mm. right? That often turns to, like rights, you know, the rights to choose and the rights for privacy, right? It, it the, the populations that become invisible are the ones that don't have access to choice because they don't have material privileges, right? So working class women, women of color. Um, so I think that within the disability, like especially the disability parenting world, because there's lots of like, you know, poor working class, people with disabilities and people of color. But I think particularly like kind of in the parenting world and or within organizations, like those people who don't have like the class advantage to even be able to like get up and come to these meetings and these events right. and raise money for walks and, mm-hmm. you know, like come to and pay for workshops to learn how to navigate IEP. Like all the people who aren't there in those spaces become invisible.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so what I often tell my students is that true intersectionality is when you think about the solutions to problems in ways that put the most marginalized, most vulnerable people at the center. Wow. Right. And I think that that's important when we even look at what we're going through now around coronavirus, right? right? Like you still have people who are out there spring breaking talking about, Oh, well, if I, I'm young, if I get it, I won't die. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like and not caring about yeah. the impact on the vulnerable. Right. So like a, a true intersectionality is who is the most vulnerable. You look for who is the most vulnerable people who are uh, medically compromised, people who are houseless, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, people who have pre-existing medical conditions. And if you put them at the center, like this is who we're trying to protect, then you're going to make a world that's better for everyone. Right. You know, like mm-hmm. if we could get all of the you know like now all of a sudden we figured out how to like put homeless people in hotels it's like okay, we could have always done that right. <laughs> you know yes. like and there's some cities that are still refusing, but it's like we could have always done this right like okay. we shouldn't have to wait for a pandemic we should you know who is the most vulnerable and if we can center and protect the most vulnerable, you know I don't believe in trickle down, but I do believe in trickle up right yes. like the the things that you would need to do to protect the most vulnerable are going to make sure that everyone else like is is okay Mm -hmm. right it might reduce inequity and it might reduce some people's advantages and privileges but what would we rather have right you know like would we rather have a world where a few people have all of this like you know advantage and privilege and like so many people have nothing or a world where like <laughs> you know mm-hmm. a few people have a little bit less so that more people could have have like a chance at life yeah. you know and so like that's what true intersectionality is this is about identity it, it it's the was who's often cited is like the creators of intersectionality theory even though we could trace it back generations, and I think lots of women of color have participated in creating this idea, but one of the most often cited um, collectives is the Combahee River Collective um, in the 1970s, which is a collective of Black lesbian women, Black lesbian socialist women. And they said, like, identity politics for them was about our identity existing at the intersection of race and sexuality and class, gives us like a vantage point to where we could see how all of these systems work. And Mm -hmm. so we're invested in the destruction of all systems. And when like the black lesbian working class woman is free then everyone will be free. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so that was like what identity politics was. And we've turned Mm -hmm. (laughs) it into this whole different thing where it's about like, like if you, if you name your identity in the process of advocating for justice, you're somehow pulling a card or making excuses or something. Mm-hmm. And that's never what it was about. It's mm-hmm. about putting the most vulnerable people at the center, mm-hmm. you know? So like in education, if we thought about the children who, you know, have less advantages and privileges and and who have different ways of learning. Sorry, my son just burst in. Um, <gasps> hey, Are you going to, you're going to take the laundry bag? Okay. He just came in and grabbed a bag of laundry. Okay. <laughs> oh, good job. Um, <laughs> I love it. Like if we didn't think of, oh, well, we'll just like sit your kid in the back and give him an aid and, you know, the right. he has to move on and teach the rest of the class, like if your child's education was as important as every, if they were put at the center, right. then the you would have to put in place for them to learn what everyone else will benefit everyone else. Yeah. If you do, if you do it right. And if you really care, right, yeah. you're going to take that you back too.
0: He's got things to do, mom. Meeting his yeah. sensory needs. Push yeah, that yeah. laundry basket.
3: <laughs> He's just dragging the laundry bags out of the room. <laughs> um,
2: that's the best definition I've heard of it. It's super yes. helpful. And I hope it's helpful to our listeners to hear it. Um, I, we always say you can't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think that at, like as a white woman who now has children with disabilities, and I have a, a daughter who's black, right. Um, my world is completely changed and there are, and I'm, I also, justice is also very important to me. I'm a very justice oriented person. Mm -hmm. And I just wish that I knew better before, Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. I wish someone would have told me more. I wish that I didn't grow up with privilege, like the, and not understanding the privileges that I had, and not understanding that I could do more and be better and step in, use my privilege for the good of of um the most vulnerable or, or whatever that looked like. And so, but it's hard to you can't know what you don't know. And yeah. so I'm grateful for your voice because I feel like I would assume the majority of the people listening are white people just because this is the audience that that we're in right now. And I just feel like as parents who have kids with Down syndrome, we are we are rad, like we're such rad advocates for our kids. we're doing so so much work, and we're like in it for our kids, so to also hear that idea of well let's look at the most vulnerable right like let's look at mm-hmm. let's look at the intersection and know that now we know better, so let's do better let we know better, let's do better, let's make sure that we're not just laser focused on our one kid or the the i the group our kid identifies with yes, most. Like, okay. let's look at, let's look at those intersections. So I, I I'm i really excited about this conversation. I want to, mm-hmm. I kind of want to do like a Q and A from our listeners and then have you back
0: on. It is like an invitation for, for those of us like yes. down syndrome is an invitation for those of us who needed to wake up to our privilege Yes.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: and to, to walk through the door and go, oh, there's a whole world. There is a whole world here of injustice Mm -hmm. and I wasn't seeing it before. And like, do we take that invitation and do something with it?
3: Yeah. Right. And I mean, it woke me up. Um, It woke me up to my class privilege, right? I didn't grow up with class privilege, but I grew into it through education. And I know that I have the ability to kind of hustle and get whatever I want for my kid, you know, because I now have the access to attorneys and I have the access like I know I have the ability to do that. So I'm at this like point where it's like okay, am I going to manipulate that, you know, to, mm-hmm. or am I going to you know, it's just at this mm-hmm. it's it's just this interesting crossing point like what does it what will it look like to 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 try to fight to change things rather than just try to like make it better for my kid, you know. Mm-hmm. Um And so, yeah, my teaching has transformed, (laughs) you know, since I had this child, because I think that before I had him, I thought about, like, disability accommodations just as something that I had to do. Like, oh, okay, I got to make a hard copy of this test. I got to extend the time on this test, right? And after I had him, it was like, you know what? why have time limits on the test at all? <laughs> like, yeah. why do it like this at all? Like, you know, like everything has transformed, right? Because right. I'm thinking about things from this vantage point that no, I didn't really have before, mm-hmm. right? Before him.
1: It's hard too, to, to um, think about um, changing the world for everybody because mental space and time. (laughs) So I feel your tug of war. Like it's hard. Okay. Do I go in this for everybody or just kind of get things done for sunflower? In my mind, I get stunted and I'm like, I don't know. I just bow out. We're homeschooling, (laughs) but not in a bad way, but almost like I'm just overwhelmed. I don't know yet. I'm going to grow into it. She's only six. I'm only 35 as today. Woo. Woo. I'm still learning. I'm growing into this thing. Yes.
3: <laughs> Shiloh wanted to join us. Handsome. Hi, bud. Oh, hi, my goodness. not had a haircut in about four weeks. <laughs> right. I, along all with all the rest
2: that of us. way. <laughs> he is is so thing. handsome. Hi, hi, buddy. We'll have to put yeah. a picture on our show notes so our listeners can see this handsome little guy. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah. And I mean, you know, we have that conversation all the time. It's difficult. You know, it's a critical study scholar. We have the conversation all the time about we don't believe that suburbs should exist, but that's where some of us live, you know, right? <laughs> like, yeah, <totally>. You know, <laughs> like in the whole process of creating like the charter school movement and private schools, there's a lot of racism, white supremacy, mm-hmm. the boom from integration. But at the same time, sometimes we're looking for that charter kid that's actually going to give our child a chance, you know, so it's complicated, it's complicated, it's complicated. It's super complicated, you
2: know? Yeah, um, I have one more question and you can choose not to answer it, but if you had a word of advice, like, hey, white moms raising kids with Down syndrome, it would be awesome if you guys did this. And then like a word of encouragement to women of color raising kids with Down syndrome.
3: Um, gosh, man. <laughs> I guess, I mean, I guess what I've said already, like, I would like, yeah, like, I would like white moms to remember, like, You know, I know for a lot of you, this is your first time, (laughs) right? Like dealing with like the idea that there's something that your child might not be able to get or might not be able to have, you know, like this might be your first time dealing with like what I'm calling an intersection for lack of a better word, but it's not the first time it existed, right? Like sometimes my problem when I'm having, like if I have conversations with people around like gentrification, like, you know, we all move. You know, to different areas to try to create the best life for our family. But don't act like this neighborhood didn't exist before you found out about it. You know, like, I know this might be your first time for rain into like, oh, wow, I have to fight. And oh, there's an injustice here. But this is not the first injustice that's existed. Mm-hmm. And you might want to think about how this might be connected to other forms of injustice. hmm. And are there ways to fight where we don't reproduce and perpetuate those forms of injustice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Those other forms of injustice, right? Um, and for and for Black moms, or um, you know, reach reach out and, and find other community, you know, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Everyone has their reasons. You know, I don't really know. I don't know why I don't see as many black moms involved in some of these spaces. Maybe I just need to try some different organizations, some different events. Um, I've invited people. I have a few people who I link up with at club 21 and we've been having these conversations. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is. Um, Hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't know what I would say to other people because I don't know what other people's I don't know anyone else's struggle the right. way that I know mine. Right. Um, sometimes at certain points within this, sorry, he found a noisy toy. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <fine. You don't. laughs> okay, sometimes at certain points within this journey, you need different things mm-hmm. and I think that there was a point where I just really needed to like turn inward to, to my community yeah. and then there was a point where like, okay I need him to meet his peers and I need to, you know, I need to talk to people who are sharing like this part of my journey, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's great. I think it's helpful. Super helpful.
0: Um, Jalandra, before we close out, would you tell our listeners
3: where to find you? We know you have a blog where your mama, is that right? Yes. And so it's on my website. So the website, cause I don't think it's the only blog with that title. So people should look for my website, which is Jalandra Davis.com. Okay. Great. Are and you on, on social media? I, um, I'm not a super social media person. I'm trying to do better. <laughs> I'm on Twitter. It's simply Jalandra Davis. And um, me and Shiloh are on Instagram. So Shiloh is Shiloh Akeem. On Instagram, Shilohakin, um, and I think I'm just Jalarda Davis on Instagram. But you can follow Shiloh's page. <laughs> um, you can follow Shiloh's page, and I post there. And um, and I'm on, I am active on Twitter. Cool,
1: cool. Thank you so much for um, coming on and talking with us. You are amazing and so smart and a wonderful speaker. I just have enjoyed our time. Um, okay, Thank friends. You. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and an interview with our family of the week and Jelandra will you stick around for one of our favorite parts of our episode where we give good news and um we would love to hear some good news about Shiloh.
3: Okay, yeah, yeah, no problem.
1: Okay, so we'll be right back, friends.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Jonas Paul Eyewear. Stylish kids' glasses with an impact. Mercedes, I know you know about style and your babies are the coolest. You know it. So tell us how cute these glasses are. Okay, listen, it's so hard to find
1: on-trend glasses for kids, and these are the cutest glasses I've seen.
0: Yes, and have you ever used a home try-on kit for glasses? No, but it sounds
1: super fun, and I feel like your kids get to play
0: dress-up. We have Jonas Paul glasses, and this past year, Brixie, my eight-year-old, needed glasses, so we got a home try-on kit from Jonas Paul. Brixie loves looking good. He actually legit wore a bow tie all on his own, for picture day having a kid at home was perfect for him they sent us seven frames and he had a week to walk around in them and make his own opinion and it was really nice to not have that quick we have 10 minutes in a store and there's fluorescent lights and we need to decide feeling when he picked his frame We put our order in online and we shipped the box of trial glasses back with the free shipping label provided. Super easy.
1: So you have Jonas Paul glasses at your house and you know what, so does Heather.
0: Yeah, that's right, Mason has them. She's worn Jonas Paul glasses for a couple of years now. We all know that getting glasses to fit on our kids with Down syndrome can be difficult. There's a flatter nose bridge that our kids have and lower set ears, and that can make getting glasses to fit a challenge. Here's the thing about Jonas Paul, their nose pads are designed specifically for children's noses. They also have these unique adjustable tips that you can bend for a custom fit. So you can make it fit to your child's perfect little face.
1: These glasses are so affordable. Half the price of most of the children's glasses out there. Plus, here's the best part. Every frame sold prevents
0: childhood blindness in the developing world. It's so great. You know that Jonas Paul now sells glasses for teenagers. And our kids are growing up. They're growing up fast. And we are going to need those teenager sizes before we know it. For first-time customers, Jonas
1: Paul is offering 15% off. Use the promo code, the lucky few at checkout. Visit their website, jonaspauleyewear.com to learn more.
0: Hey friends, Micah here. Now I know you know, it is no small feat to pull this podcast off every week. And we are always looking for support from sponsors. And we've gotten to a point where we would love to include you, our listeners as well. So we're starting something new around here. It's called Patreon. And we have some tiers where you could choose to join us by supporting us financially in whatever way makes the most sense for you. So from $10 to $100 a month, you could be part of the lucky few podcast and make it happen every week. Along with us, we have some fun perks. We have some fun opportunities coming for those of you who decide you want to jump on this boat and we can't wait to share more with you. If you are interested at all, go to our website, theluckyfewpodcast.com, click on Patreon and check out how you can support us. Continue to be narrative shifters and shouters of worth in this Down Syndrome space. Thanks, friends.
5: My name is Kelsey Clare, and I am calling with some good news for the Lucky Few podcast. I have two sisters that happen to have Down syndrome—one younger, one older. So um, Down syndrome is like the most normal thing in my life. Um, I, I love my sisters, and growing up with them was by far the biggest, biggest blessing and gift I could have ever been given. Um, and because of that, I just always had a heart for um, for all of our friends that happen to have Down syndrome, especially kids, and um, I'm director of a children's theater in our local community, and um, I recently kick-started a theater program specifically designed for our friends with um, special needs. It's a peer-based program that involves um, peers from our theater program and um, and our friends with special needs and special abilities, and um, it's been touched. A blessing it's been really cool to see these kids interact and i'd say the biggest payoff honestly yeah we get to include kids of all abilities in our community in our theater program and that's been such good news such a blessing but um i'd say the biggest um blessing and and good news to report is watching these peers these kids that have grown up doing theater but maybe have not been exposed to um our friends with um, different abilities than them, and it's been really cool to see these worlds collide and to see um, like both, both sides grow, um, the peers and the performers alike. Everyone is just one unit, and it's been so cool to um, witness, and that's our good news. That's cool things happening in Prescott, Arizona um, for everyone, so thanks for listening. Bye!
2: all right friends um we love hearing from our family of the week thank you so much for sharing your family with us if you would like to be our family of the week go ahead and tag at the lucky few pod on your instagram pictures um and we our producer will be in touch with you we'd love to hear from you and let's hear some good news some good quarantine news jalandra can you give us some good news about shiloh
3: um okay so Since we've been quarantined, I have been cooking like three meals a day, (laughs) which I'm pretty excited about because I've never been like very domestic and been kind of playing house and I've kind of been enjoying it, but um, different variations on beans mostly and Shiloh's really good. (laughs) Yeah, Shino's really, really oral delayed, and um, he doesn't eat a lot of foods. He was only eating purees until a few months ago, but he is now eating about four different varieties of beans. Get it, Shiloh. So, So, (laughs) yeah, we've had a beans, red beans and rice, black bean chili, you know, that's what what our diet has been like over here. So, um, (laughs) but I'm excited that he's eating the same thing that we're eating, at Mm -hmm. least, you know, at least if it's beans. 100%
2: Yes. 100% huge yes any kind of new food is such good news good news I love that um Jalandra thank you so much for being with us thanks for putting your voice out there and for the work that you're doing and for sharing with us today I've learned so much and yes. I really um I really appreciate it and I want to have you back on so we're gonna make that happen yeah so Q&A
3: thank
2: you, Q&A, thank you so, much.
3: Thank you so yeah. much I was really looking forward to this and it was a great time
2: Good. Good. I'm glad that I'm glad you had fun with us. we like to think a great time, <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes we're convinced it's just us. Yeah, <laughs> <that makes sense. laughs> okay. So thank you listeners for listening in. Um, as always friends, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to leave us a voicemail with your good news, you can call us at 424-442-9147 and share about your family and your good news about your loved one who has down syndrome. And if you have a product or a business who wants to help us shout the worth of people with down syndrome, then we'd love to partner with you. You can email us at hello at the lucky few podcast for sponsorship opportunities. A huge thank you to our editor and producer, Andy, Lara, who is the podcast King, our co-producer of leader, our sponsor, um, to our guests and to all of you who have shared the lucky few podcast with friends who have listened faithfully and cheered us on. Don't forget, go subscribe and leave us a review on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, dear listener, sitting in your home with your kid and your children for who knows how much longer, you are amazing. You are a shouter of worth and a narrative shifter. Keep on keeping on all of the grace for you and your family. We are cheering for you. We will catch you next time on Lucky You Podcast. Bye. Bye.
3: Bye. 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 Bye.
2: Thanks for listening to Lucky Few Podcasts. Remember to review our show on Apple Podcasts and check us out on all social media at the Lucky Few Pod. You can also support the show now via anchor.fm just by going to the website, scroll down to the bottom, and you can begin your support right now. Lastly, send us your good news by going to the theluckyfewpodcast.com and sending us a message via text, voicemail, or email. See you next time.